Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National. Friday, 8th of July, 2022. From the news section, Gallic School to open in Paisley in the first for Renfrewshire. By Sarah Pacheroni. A new Gallic speaking school is set to open in Paisley. For the first time, children across Renfrewshire will be able to attend the special Gallic school. It will initially consist of one class within West Primary School and is set to open from next month. The school will welcome children into a composite primary 1 to 3 class where they will be taught lessons by a principal teacher while only speaking writing in Gaelic. As demand grows, additional teachers will be recruited as needed. It's hoped that more parents will be interested in registering their child to learn using the Gaelic medium in the future. Any child who lives in Renfrewshire can attend the Gaelic provision regardless of where in the area they live. The school will primarily accept children in primary one, two and three classes, with older children needing to speak and write fluent Scottish Gaelic for their age to be able to attend. West Primary was chosen as the location for the Gaelic class due to its central location, access and transport links. Head teacher Lynn McGinn said teachers at the school are really excited about the new Gaelic class. We are pleased to be able to provide a base for the Gaelic class, she said. Everyone at the school is ready to welcome the children from August and to help them settle into their new school as quickly as possible. Our school is proud of its bilingual culture and looks forward to the addition of the dedicated Gaelic provision to enhance this further. Convener for Education at Renfrewshire Council, Councillor Emma Rodden, said There has been growing interest from families in Renfrewshire who wish their children to be educated while speaking and writing in Gaelic. We have listened to these families and worked at a place to provide the learning environment requested within their local authority area. Instead of having to travel long distances, Renfrewshire children will be able to remain in Renfrewshire and learn with others from their own communities. Learning while speaking writing only in Gaelic will give our children an immersive experience, allowing them to learn the Gaelic language while completing their normal schoolwork. And that article was by Sarah Pacheroni. From the National, Friday 8th of July, 2022. From the News section. Rising COVID cases in Scotland for the fifth week in a row by Anita Bundandi. The number of people with COVID-19 in Scotland has risen for the fifth week in a row. According to the infection survey produced by the Office for National Statistics, ONS, around 1 in 17 people have, in Scotland, had COVID in the week up to 
June 29th, up from 1 in 18 the week before. The figure equates to around 312, 800 people, the survey says. Covid cases have been on the rise in Scotland in the past month, increasing from 1 in 50 in the week up to May 29th. According to the ONS data, Scotland currently has the highest case level in the UK, with Northern Ireland the closest at around 1 in 19 people. Meanwhile, Wales has recorded cases in around 1 in 20 of its population and England has seen cases in 1 in around 25 people. The survey comes as Scotland passed 15,000 deaths of people with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 this week and as a result from Public Health Scotland has showed an increase of 42.5% in cases during the week up to July 3rd. The report has said 21,914 cases were reported in the most recent week, a rise from the 15,382 in the week before. And that article was by Anita Bandani. From the National, Friday the 8th of July 2022, from the Politics section. Shinzo Abe, former Japanese PM, dead after campaign speech attack by Associated Press. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has died after being shot during a campaign speech according to the NHK television. Abe, the country's longest serving leader, was shot from behind minutes after he started his speech on Friday in Nara in Western Japan. He was airlifted to a hospital for emergency treatment but was not breathing and his heart had stopped. The 67-year-old was pronounced dead later at the hospital. He had stepped down for health reasons in 2020. Police arrested the suspected gunman at the scene of the attack, which shocked people in a country known as one of the world's safest. Current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida called the attack disasterly and barbaric and said that it was absolutely unforgivable that the crime had taken place during the election campaign. The public broadcaster NHK aired footage showing Abe collapsed on the street with several security guards running toward him. He was bleeding and holding his chest. Japan's chief cabinet secretary Hirokazu Matsuno told reporters, A barbaric act like this is absolutely unforgivable, no matter what the reasons are, and we condemn it strongly. The popular former leader was still influential in the governing Liberal Democratic Party and headed its largest faction, Seiwa Kai. Elections for Japan's upper house, the less powerful chamber of its parliament, will take place on Sunday. Abe was giving a speech when people heard gunshots. He was holding his chest when he collapsed, his shirt smeared with blood, but was able to speak before he fell unconscious. The attack was a shock in a country that's one of the world's safest and with some of the strictest gun control laws anywhere. The Yomuri Shimbun newspaper printed extra editions, which were quickly grabbed by people on the street to read about the shooting. Nara, once the capital of Japan, is just to the east of Osaka on the country's main Honshu Island. Abe stepped down in 2020 because he said, 
a chronic health problem has resurfaced. He had lived with ulcerous colitis since he was a teenager and said the condition could be controlled with treatment. He told reporters at the time that it was gut-wrenching to leave many of his goals unfinished. He spoke of his failure to resolve the issue of Japanese abducted years ago by North Korea, a territorial dispute with Russia, and a revision of Japan's war-renouncing constitution. The last goal was the reason he was such a divisive figure. His ultra-nationalism had riled the Korea and China, and his push to normalise Japan's defence posture had angered many in the country. Abe failed to achieve his cherished goal of formally rewriting the US-drafted Pacifist constitution because of poor public support. And that article was by the Associated Press. This article is from The National, date 8th July 2022, from the Culture section. St Andrew's Cathedral reopens graves of world-famous golfers to the public, by Gregor Young. Access to the resting places of some of golf's most famous players has been reinstated at St Andrew's Cathedral. Historic Environment Scotland, HES, who managed the site, had put access restrictions in place for essential high-level masonry work. Following an inspection, a route has been opened through the cathedral grounds to provide access to the graves of old and young Tom Morris, as well as to the museum and its important treasures and exhibitions. The move comes ahead of the historic town hosting the 150th Open Golf Championship, which tees off next Thursday, with tens of thousands of people expected to descend on St Andrews. The public are again able to visit these important sites alongside partial access to the cathedral grounds. Some access restrictions will remain in place at the site for the time being for further conservation work, including St Rule's Tower. Stephen Duncan, Director of Marketing and Engagement at HES, said, We are delighted to be able to provide additional access to St Andrew's Cathedral as part of Scotland's welcome for the Open with the Museum and its important treasures reopening after essential restrictions were put in place for high-level masonry inspections. Whilst some access restrictions remain in place for safety reasons, we have also opened access to the graves of old and young Tom Morris, amongst some of golf's most famous sons, which reside within the grounds. We know how important it is to be able to offer visitors from around the world the opportunity to visit these sites, and have been working across teams to facilitate access in advance of the Open, and look forward to welcoming visitors to the Cathedral once more. The cathedral will be open seven days from 10am to 5pm with last entry to the museum at 4.30pm. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 11th July 2022, from the news section. Experts react to collapse of Elon Musk's Twitter deal with optimism for users. 
by Jane McLeod. Twitter users will benefit from Elon Musk's move to pull out of the deal to buy the company, experts say. The Tesla and SpaceX's boss $44 billion bid to buy the social media platform is on the verge of collapse after he sent a letter saying he is terminating the acquisition. In the letter, Musk's lawyers said the platform has not complied with its contractual obligations surrounding the deal, namely giving him enough information to make an independent assessment of the prevalence of fake or spam accounts on Twitter's platform. Twitter said in response it is committed to closing the transaction and plans to pursue legal action in order to conclude the deal. Adam Leon Smith of BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT and a software testing expert, said The number of spam accounts on Twitter is hardly a secret or a surprise. Twitter is like a town square, open to all to shout abuse and praise as they see fit. That is its greatest strength and weakness at the same time. Keeping free speech out of the hands of billionaires can only be for the benefit of the general public. Whoever ends up owning Twitter, the challenges for all social media are how to manage dissent and debate in a way that ends online hate speech and keeps people safe. These are yet to be fully resolved in the UK's online safety bill, which needs to balance technical and regulatory solutions with education. Perhaps the upcoming global regulatory landscape has played a part in Mr Musk's decision, or maybe the whole thing was just another PR stunt. Musk's interest in the number of spam accounts on Twitter is believed to be linked to his then-proposed plans to further monetize the platform's user base. The billionaire has also said he wanted to bolster free speech on the platform and make it more of a digital town square for debate, but has raised concerns after saying he would reverse the permanent ban given to former US President Donald Trump who was kicked off the site for inciting violence around the US Capitol building riots last year. Paul Bernal, Professor of Information Technology Law at the University of East Anglia, said, The main thing to say is that the current situation is not unexpected. A lot of us have been thinking that Musk was getting cold feet and has been looking for a way out. Owning Twitter sounds cool, but the reality would not be easy, would not be fun, and would not be particularly lucrative. This is a reflection of how difficult free speech is in general. A lot of people, particularly in the US, seem to imagine that all you do is stop censoring and then everything will be okay. But really, it's much more nuanced and multifaceted than that. Whatever you do has implications and will annoy one group or another. A Twitter board statement read, We are committed to closing the transaction on the price and terms agreed upon with Mr Musk and plan to pursue legal action to enforce the merger agreement. We are confident that we will prevail in the Delaware 
Court of Chancery. That article was by Jane MacLeod. This article is from The National, date 11th July 2022, from the Culture section. Here's a list of what to do in St Andrews if golf isn't your thing. By John Scott Lewinsky. The Open Championship, the oldest major tournament in professional golf, is coming home this week to the cradle of the game, St Andrews. Still, what is there to enjoy in the shadow of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club if you have no passionate interest in putters and bunkers? We turned to local research and Charles Hunter, veteran Scots travel guide, for the best tips on what to do in the birthplace of golf when you simply don't care about 18 holes. West Sands. Movie buffs can enjoy a free thrill sprinting along the seaside West Sands, the setting for the iconic team run that opens and closes the Academy Award-winning film Chariots of Fire. People should note there's no vehicle access during the open. St Rule's Tower and the ruined cathedral. A prime free tourist stop. The ruins of St Andrew's Cathedral and its St Rule's Tower date back to 1158 and are all that remain of the largest church ever built in Scotland. Once the centre of the Scottish Catholic Church, the cathedral fell to history during the Scottish Reformation of the 1500s. The grounds outside the ruins offer prime views of the North Sea. Hike the Castle Course While the golf world obsesses with the old course, there are six others making up the overall St Andrews complex, the largest environment for the sport in Europe. Walking paths packing impressive vistas of the sea and nearby town crisscross a few of them. The castle course offers the best of those views and wanderers out for a stroll mix with golfers throughout the track, so named because its signature holes play into a distant view of St Andrew's Castle, a safe distance from the fuss of the old course. Fife Coastal Path If the golf adjacent hiking paths are packed or out of reach during Open Championship Week, the Fife Coastal Path is a well-marked alternative trail. St Andrews University and St Salvatore's Chapel St Andrews is the oldest university in Scotland. Founded in 1413, the campus is open to visitors looking for a quiet stroll through academia. Dating from 1450, the beautiful St Salvatore's Chapel serves at the heart of the campus and is open for quiet contemplation during school hours. St Andrew's Pier Walk According to Hunter, every Sunday after service at St Salvatore's Chapel, university students don their traditional red gowns and walk the St Andrew's Pier to honour the rescue of crew members from the ship Janet of Macduff in 1800 by former student John Honey. You don't have to don red yourself, but a bracing trek down the pier offers an intimate taste of North Sea air.
St Andrew's Botanic Garden. Consistently listed as one of the finest ecological attractions in Scotland, the St Andrew's Botanic Garden gives travellers a reason to head to the city's southern edge. Stretching for more than 18 acres along Kinnisburn Woods, the garden is operated by the local council and offers a mix of standing attractions and special exhibitions exploring the floral and fauna of Fife outdoors and in glasshouse environments. Admission is £6 for adults, £5 for seniors and free for university students with ID and for under-18s. Pittenweem for visitors looking to step a little outside St Andrew's immediate surroundings, the village of Pittenweem is a 20-minute drive south with its delightful picturesque harbour and a selection of small art galleries. Anstruther If hunger sets in for visitors with a bit more ambition to wander, Hunter recommends a 15-minute drive and a check-in at the Fisheries Museum in the village of Anstruther. You'll get great fish and chips by the harbour, a short walk from the museum, Hunter added. That article was by John Scott Lewinsky. This article is from The National, date 11th July 2022, from the News section. Muslims mark Eid al-Adha but rise in food prices affects sacrifices. By Jane McLeod. Millions of Muslims across the globe have begun celebrating Eid al-Adha, one of the biggest holidays of the Islamic calendar. Known as the Feast of Sacrifice, the revered observance, which started yesterday, coincides with the final rites of the annual Hajj in Saudi Arabia. Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf was among those to send messages marking the holiday. Yousaf tweeted, Eid Mubarak to all Muslims celebrating here in Scotland, across the UK and around the world. Hope you have a wonderful time with family, friends and community. I am in charge of the tandoori leg of lamb, so pray for my family. Retweeting his message, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon added Eid Mubarak to everyone celebrating in Scotland and across the world. Eid al-Adha is a joyous occasion for which food is a hallmark. Much of Asia, including Indonesia, India and Pakistan, will observe the holiday today. But as Russia's war in Ukraine sends food prices soaring and causes widespread hardship across the Middle East, many say they cannot afford the livestock for the ritual sacrifice. Desperation over the cost of living crisis has undercut the typically booming holiday trade in goats, cows and sheep. Everyone wants to sacrifice an animal in the name of Allah, but they are not able to do so because they're poor, said Mohammed Nadir from a cattle market in Mazar-e-Sharif, northern Afghanistan. Eid al-Hadda commemorates the Quran's tale of Ibrahim's willingness to sacrifice Ismail as an act of obedience to God. 
Before he could carry out the sacrifice, God provided a ram as an offering. In the Christian and Jewish telling, Abraham is ordered to kill another son, Isaac. Many Muslims celebrate the four-day feast by ritualing, slaughtering livestock and distributing the meat among family, friends and the poor. At Al-Shati refugee camp in western Gaza City yesterday, excited children lined up for the innards and trotters, a cherished offering for those otherwise unable to afford meat. In Afghanistan, there is usually a shopping rush for prime animals ahead of the holiday. But this year, surging global inflation and economic devastation after the swift Taliban takeover of the country in the aftermath of the chaotic withdrawal of NATO forces have put that beyond the reach of many. Last year on this day, I sold 40 to 50 cattle, said Mohammed Kasim, an Afghan cattle vendor. This year, I have only managed to sell two. Wheat and meat prices have multiplied and hunger has spread as Russia's war on Ukraine disrupts agriculture and constrains energy supply. The sky-high costs of animal feed and fertiliser have forced livestock salesmen to hike prices. From Tripoli in war-torn Libya, families are looking forward to the holiday after the past two years of the pandemic and more than a decade of violent chaos. But the price tags, up to £1,750 per sheep, had buyers pacing around the dusty market, apprehensive about the major purchase. Honestly, the prices are crazy, said Sabri Al-Hadi. At a livestock market in the blockaded Gaza Strip, there were hardly any buyers. Vendors said the price of sheep feed has jumped fourfold in recent weeks. Our life is full of loss, lamented Abu Mustafa, a sheep salesman in the Deir al-Bala in central Gaza, which has long suffered from widespread unemployment and poverty. On the streets of Palestine's Ramallah in the West Bank, families were cutting back on other components of the feast, typically a bounty of dishes. On days like these, there were demand for fruits, sweets and for nuts as well. But as you can see, no one is standing to buy now, complained a fruit vendor, Balai Hamidi. But lavish feast or not, there were community prayers, a welcome sight in much of the world after years of coronavirus-related restrictions. The faithful crowded into mosques across the Middle East and North Africa yesterday, from Kenya to Egypt, throngs of worshippers prayed shoulder to shoulder, feet to feet. It comes after one million Muslims from around the world flocked to the holy city of Mecca, the largest pilgrimage since the start of the pandemic. That article was by Jane McLeod. This article is from The National. Date 11th July 2022, from the politics section. The energy crisis requires pandemic level action, the report says. By Jane McLeod.
A pandemic-level response is needed to address the energy bills crisis and avoid a catastrophic loss of life, a Holyrood Committee report has found. The Scottish and UK governments have been urged to provide immediate emergency support to help those struggling with rising food costs, the Net Zero Energy and Transport Committee report said. Efforts to help with the cost of living crisis are recognised by the committee, but its report said additional financial help for households, better energy education and acceleration of programmes to retrofit and insulate homes will help vulnerable people. Committee convener Dean Lockhart said urgent action similar to that taken during the COVID-19 pandemic was needed to prevent death or serious ill health for the worst off Scots. He said, this is a crisis unfolding in real time and one which we are told threatens a catastrophic loss of life if swift action is not taken. We recognise some of the actions taken by the UK and Scottish governments even over the short period of our inquiry, but more can and must be done now and in a more targeted way to get help to those most in need. Over the medium to long term, it's also clear that we need to escape dependence on volatile international energy markets and accelerate all our efforts to enable this. For now, our message is clear. The Scottish Government must demonstrate a targeted emergency response to this crisis, on a par with action taken during the pandemic to ensure the least well-off are not vulnerable to death or serious ill health due to rising energy costs and associated cost of living expenses. The committee has backed the Scottish Government on the need to take action through available welfare provisions but asks ministers to set out how social security will be targeted specifically at lower income families with young children, those with disabilities, older people and those at risk of fuel poverty. A national publicity campaign similar to the COVID-19 warnings so that Scots know where they can get support is also recommended. The MSPs urged the Scottish Government to speed up the plans for a programme of home heating and insulating. An investment commitment of £1.8 billion has been pledged. The committee plans to write to UK Energy Minister Greg Hans to call for similar measures to be taken with reserved powers. A Scottish Government spokesman said it would carefully consider the findings of the committee and continue to support consumers with the powers available to it. Powers relating to the energy markets remain reserved and we have repeatedly called for the UK government to urgently take further tangible actions to support households, including a temporary cut in energy bills VAT, further targeted financial assistance for those least able to afford their energy bills and Four Nations discussions to develop an effective response to the energy bill increases, the spokesman said. 
Scottish ministers have made clear their disappointment that the UK government's energy security bill is a missed opportunity to tackle the cost of living crisis, failing to sufficiently deliver on key measures such as reducing the premium paid by households reliant on electric heating, accelerating energy efficiency and heat decarbonisation projects. That article was by Jane McLeod. From the National, Tuesday the 12th of July 2022, News, East Lothian, Scots warned to stay out of water after Torness substation leak, by Marie Sharp, local democracy reporter. Scottish families have been warned to stay out of the water at two East Lothian beaches after an oil leak from a substation at Torness nuclear power plant. East Lothian Council has advised people not to bathe at Thorntonloch and Scatteroa Beach as a clean-up operation gets underway. The local authority said an electrical fault at the substation caused an automatic fire protection system to activate, leading to a mix of oil from the transformer and cooling water overflowing into the, onto the drainage system. Reports of discoloured water in the sea led to the warning and water quality investigations are being carried out. The substation is operated by SP Energy Networks and located within the grounds of EDF's Tornes Power Station. Stephen Kelly, Transmission Network Operators Manager for SP Energy Networks, said, While the initial release of oil was swiftly contained within our catchment bund, we're working closely with EDF and SEPA to ensure that any overflow caused by the cooling water is cleaned up quickly and effectively. We are sorry for this inconvenience caused and are doing everything we can to resolve this situation as quickly as possible. Tom Reid, the Council's Head of Infrastructure, also advised people to keep pets out of the water. He said, As a precaution, we are advising members of the public to refrain from entering the water at Scatteraw and Thorntonlock at this time. We would also ask that owners do not allow pets to enter the water. Protecting the local environment is our top priority and council officers have been in sight and are working with colleagues from SP Energy Networks and EDF. Last week, reports circulated on social media of the bodies of guillemots being washed up in Thornloch Beach. It comes just a month after hundreds of dead gannets were washed up after bird flu broke out on the Bash Rock, home to the world's largest northern colony of the seabirds. A spokesperson for the Scottish Environment Protection Agency, SEPA, said it was aware of the oil leak. They said, Fire water and cooling oil were released to a drainage system on site and an unknown quantity escaped to the sea. Mitigation is in place to minimise the impact and we continue to liaise with the site operators and other partners as a clean-up operation and investigation into the incident is carried out. SEPA is clear that compliance is non-negotiable and we will consider any further action if required in line with our enforcement policy. And that article was by Marie Sharp. From the National, Tuesday the 12th of July 2022, Politics Labour planned confidence vote on Boris Johnson's government in effort to oust PM by Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. Labour are preparing to force a confidence vote on Boris Johnson's government 
challenging Conservative MPs to oust the Prime Minister as they hold a leadership contest. The opposition will table the motion on Tuesday with the aim of holding the vote the following day, according to party sources. Johnson said he would resign as Conservative leader after a long tight line of scandals, but is clinging on to the office as caretaker Prime Minister until a replacement is found in a move that has divided Tory MPs. Labour's bid would force Johnson's colleagues to either back the government or vote against it. Tory MPs will be wary that opposing the government could trigger a general election at a time when they're selecting a new leader and risk losing the large Commons majority Johnson won in 2019. Authority rapidly drained away from Johnson last week as cabinet ministers and junior colleagues resigned from government and Tory MPs publicly called for his resignation. The confidence vote, which would require a simple majority to pass, will put on record where leadership contenders and their colleagues in the Commons stand on Johnson staying in office over the next two months. But now the Conservative Party has set out its timetable for a replacement to be announced on September 5th, the clamour for Johnson's immediate exit has been dampened. That the motion is in Labour's name makes the Tory support even less likely. Sir Keir Stammer had previously threatened to bring the confidence vote to prevent this nonsense about clinging on for a few months. He's inflicted lies, fraud and chaos in the country, the Labour leader said last week. If they don't get rid of him, then Labour will step up in the national interest and bring a vote of no confidence because we can't go on with this Prime Minister clinging on for months and months to come. If the confidence vote does succeed, a general election could be called or the Queen could invite someone else to form a government on the basis they could win a vote of confidence in the House. In an article was by Laura Webster. From the National, Tuesday the 12th of July 2022. From the comments section, Shona Craven, Get fingers on buzzers for Tory squabbles on televised debates. By columnist and community editor Shona Craven. Please, let's have buzzers. Otherwise, next week's televised debates among Tory leadership contenders may descend into chaos, especially if everyone from Jacob B. Smog to some bloke you've never heard of somehow scrapes through to remain in the race. If the broadcasters opt for a quiz show format, then they can all merrily jab away at red buttons, pretending to be poking their biggest rivals in the eye. The hopefuls will, of course, have a collective responsibility to keep things civil and comprehensible, but if they did get told off by their hosts for interrupting or other bad behaviour, expect them to point the finger at someone else and pretend they weren't actually involved at all. The 1922 Committee of Tory Backbenchers met last night to figure out how to whittle nearly a dozen candidates down to a more manageable selection. The new threshold of 20 nominations has already been met by former Chancellor Richie Sunak and current Trade Policy Minister Penny Mordaunt, so they will definitely have marked appointments with the ITV Sunday night and Sky News on Monday night in their diaries. At time of writing, there are some 11 MPs in the running, with Rhys Mogg and Priti Patel apparently vying for support to become the continuity candidate and hoover up votes from those Tories who are alarmed at the prospect of the total disintegration of the UK being halted for even five minutes. Continue the chaos would certainly make a snappy campaign slogan if ham-fisted attempts to noble soon out with smears are, are successful. Regardless of how many remain, once the nominations have been counted, 
There will be lots of debating to get through in a limited amount of time, and it would be a shame to fill a big chunk of it with the repetition of the same genius buzz phrases we've already thoroughly sick of hearing mere days into this contest. Let's see how Sunday night goes first, but in the name of efficiency and entertainment, Sky's Key Barley may wish to open Monday's proceedings in the style of a school headmistress and treat the party faithful to the singing of a few hymns. I propose, when I survey the wondrous UK, followed by the injury if thou gavest, Lord, is ended, and rounding off with an old classic, what a friend we had in Boris. If Patel has to deliver this one solo, direct to camera, while Sunak steers at his shoes, then so be it. Then on to the questions. Family Fortune seems an appropriate format for such a dysfunctional bunch who are supposedly all on the same team, but have apparently wasted no time compiling dirty dossiers on each other. I wonder if Barley has read all the juicy bits of those. Perhaps you can give us some clues about the contents, along with a few well-tied winks and eyebrow raises. The classic UK game show was ripped off an American one called Family Feud, which involves surveying 100 people, then asking teams of relatives to guess the most popular answers given to open-ended questions such as name a breed of dog or name something you do in the dark. As it was a family show, presumably the answers broadcast did not include sleep with your special advisor or stab your former cabinet colleague in the front. Of course, for next week's shows, those surveyed would need to be Tory party members with questions along the lines of what values matter to you and a leader and what uncosted tax cut do you want to be bride with? It could be, of course, that some of these 11 have already privately decided to bow out upon learning that the Labour Party have been given a peek into their cupboards and made some hair-raising discoveries. But given all we know about the man currently squatting in Downing Street, you have to wonder what would even constitute a career-limiting secret these days. Some of the very people these Tories condemn as woke might be among the first to defend any politician subjected to kink-shaming due to their unconventional sexual habits, and party members may prove to be relaxed about the personal tax arrangements of the people setting levels of taxation for everybody else, regardless of whether they are standing on a platform of cutting them or claiming such cuts are based on comforting fairy tales. Relief that Johnson is going may soon be followed by alarm that every one of these cad chancers is actually serious in their bid, thinking, if he can be Prime Minister, why can't I? If the Tory MPs can't reach an early consensus on which ones constitute the best of a bad lot, there won't be enough room for lecterns at the TV debates, and they'll have to squeeze them around a fire pit like a dramatic night in Love Island, except with even more simmering resentments and an even stronger desire among the contestants to ruin each other. Have your popcorn at the ready. And that was an opinion piece by Shona Craven. The National News on Wednesday the 13th of July. Calls for not proven verdicts to be abolished from criminal trials. An article written by Steph Braun, multimedia political journalist. Scots have said a two-verdict system should be brought into criminal trials instead of having a third option of not proven to aid understanding. Responses to a consultation on Scotland's controversial not proven verdict were published yesterday. The survey received 200 responses from the public, legal sector and those with lived experience. 
It also considered other potential related reforms, including jury size, the majority required for conviction and the requirement for corroboration. In Scottish criminal trials, there are three verdicts, guilty, not guilty and not proven. The not proven verdict has no definition in law, but the legal implications are exactly the same as a not guilty verdict. The independent analysis report of the consultation responses found... Respondents supported changing to a two-verdict system, reasoning that it would be easier to understand, fairer and more straightforward. Respondents favoured verdicts of guilty and not guilty, compared to 41% who supported proven and not proven. A majority of respondents from a wide range of stakeholders supported a qualified jury majority of some kind if there is a move to two verdicts. A majority of respondents supported jury size remaining at 15 jurors. A higher number of respondents supported keeping the corroboration rule than reforming it or abolishing it. Justice Secretary Keith Brown said, I'm very grateful to all of those individuals and organisations who've taken the time to contribute their views on these matters, particularly those who have shared their personal experience of the justice system. We must now give careful consideration to the full range of responses received. The findings from this consultation analysis will be used along with a wide range of other information and evidence to inform the decision-making process on any potential recommendations for reform. Any potential reforms will be considered alongside wider work, including the outcome of the current consultation on improving victims' experiences of the justice system. Independent research has highlighted inconsistent views on the meaning and effect of the not-proven verdict. The Scottish Government committed in its programme for government to launch a public consultation on the three-verdict system and whether the not-proven verdict should be abolished and to also consider reform of the corroboration rule. The basic principle of the corroboration rule is that an accused cannot be convicted of a crime unless the essential facts of the crime are able to be established by evidence from at least two independent sources. An article written by Steph Braun. The National Politics on Wednesday the 13th of July Fife Council frozen as Labour leader takes two-month holiday and a pay rise. An exclusive article written by Xander Richards, political reporter. The minority Labour administration running one Scottish council has been left in limbo after its leader went on holiday for two months, right after taking a significant pay rise. David Ross, who used votes from the Tory and Lib Dem groups to install himself as the head of Fife Council, despite Labour winning just 20 of the 75 seats, has left Scotland until August. It comes just weeks after Mr Ross saw his remuneration for his role as council leader increase by more than 75%, which increased his total salary by around 33%. The Labour Group chief was to earn a special responsibility allowance of around £14,600 on top of his £19,571 councillor salary due to his role as leader. After a council meeting in late May, this allowance was boosted to £26,098, meaning the Labour man now earns £45,669 a year. SNP Group Leader David Alexander said his party had not opposed the pay rise in May, but now he's not there. All these councillors collect special responsibility allowances and they're not taking special responsibility for anything, he told The National. 
I just find it absolutely and utterly incredible that when we've got the chance to make a difference to the renewal and recovery from Covid, he's gone. Rather than trying to get things done for the people of Fife, he goes on holiday for two months. It's bizarre. What's annoying is the SNP in Fife had their best ever result in getting 34 councillors. Labour in Fife had the worst ever result, going down to 20 councillors. Now there's not going to be a real meeting of Fife Council to decide anything until August the 25th. Mr Alexander said his SNP group, which was locked out of power by unionists despite being the largest party on the council, had been prepared to hit the ground running. He added, Instead, the threesome of the Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the Tories have chosen to treat the three months from the local elections as a break, with no effective political decision-making taking place until late August. Mr Ross's absence means that Fife Council's cabinet isn't scheduled to meet until August the 25th, despite the administration having been formed soon after the local elections on May the 5th. Mr Alexander added in a Facebook post, Council staff are doing what they can, but there's a total invisibility where political leadership is concerned. Are they saying they can't make a difference? Fife had been controlled by a joint SNP-Labour administration before the May vote, with Mr Alexander and Mr Ross working as co-leaders. After the elections, Labour, who won 20 councillors, leaned on the Lib Dems, who won 13, and the Tories, who won 8, to take control and lock the SNP's 34 councillors out of power. Thanks to the Tories' votes, Mr Ross was able to become sole leader of the local authority. In return, the Labour group handed the Tory chief Kathleen Leslie a top-paid role scrutinising education, despite her having been struck off the teaching register after calling Nicola Sturgeon a drooling hag. Referencing council appointments such as Miss Leslie's, Mr Alexander said they voted 37 times together. Labour, Lib Dems and Tories voted for each other on 37 occasions, and they say there's not a deal. Head of Five Council's Legal and Democratic Service, Lindsay Thompson, said that councillors are not employees of the council and therefore none of the same arrangements for annual leave exist. Most councils have a recognised recess period over the summer, which is broadly in line with school holidays. The programme of meetings to June 2023 was provided for the council's consideration last month and dates for all committees are available on our website. She added... The remuneration of councillors is regulated by the Local Governance Scotland Act of 2004 and the salary that is to be paid to council leader is set out in regulations made under the Act. For 2022-2023, the salary for the five council leader is £45,669. Council was invited to agree that figure at its meeting in May 2022. The council's new administration has one council leader – Previously, Councillor Ross shared the council's leadership role and remuneration. Fife's Labour Party declined to comment. An exclusive article written by Xander Richards. The National News on Wednesday the 13th of July. Royal National Mod returns to Scott City after 18 years. An article written by Aaron Burns-Lees and read by Howell. The Royal National Mod has unveiled its programme for 2022 with an array of events celebrating Gaelic culture and music set to return to Perth for the first time in 18 years this October. The eight-day fringe event, which takes place in a different Scottish city each year, will include a wide variety of shows, concerts, ceilies and exhibitions for audiences to enjoy. 
The Royal National Mod is one of the largest celebrations of Gaelic culture on the Scottish calendar, and this year it'll celebrate 130 years since the first ever event in Oban in 1892. Around a thousand musicians and participants will fill venues all across Perth from October the 14th to October the 22nd this year. The opening concert will see singers Mary McInnes, Arthur Cormack, Caitlin Lilly and Darren McLean take to the stage alongside a band led by Gary Innes and Ewan Henderson of Manran fame. The programme will see the diverse range of performances accompanied by a number of in-person competitions, some online competitions and even some brand new competition categories. Competition categories include singing, recitation, instrumental, drama and highland dancing, while new elements include an accompanied choirs competition aimed at harmony singing groups of between five and ten singers, and a new solo singing contest, the Calmac competition, which is open to adult learners. Another new competition for the Perth Mod is the Battle of the Bands, with two junior events, under-13s and under-19s, giving young people the opportunity to perform live on stage and the chance to win a recording session experience with Wee Studio in Stornoway. James Graham, chief executive of the Royal National Mod, said it'll be so special to hear and see the best that Gaelic culture has to offer during this year's event and to welcome people from Perth, the rest of Scotland and indeed the world to the city to enjoy Gaelic music and culture across Perth's unique and special venues. Shona McLennan, chief executive of Bordner Gaelic, said... The MOD is always a huge celebration of Gaelic language and culture, providing opportunities to use the language in a wide range of events. An article written by Aaron Burns-Lees. The National News on Wednesday the 13th of July. Scottish scientists integral to James Webb Space Telescope Project. An article written by Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. Scientists in Scotland have been celebrating the first photographs from the James Webb Space Telescope, which show the most detailed images ever captured of the universe. The telescope, which is the largest and most powerful ever to be launched into space, was created over 20 years. The first image from NASA's James Webb Space Telescope was revealed on Monday, showing what is said to be the deepest and most detailed picture of the cosmos to date. Known as Webb's first deep field, the picture showcases a galaxy cluster called SMACS 0723 as it appeared 4.6 billion years ago. The Mid-Infrared Instrument, or MIRI, one of four crucial scientific instruments on board, was primarily built in Scotland. Most of the pictures released from the telescope on Tuesday include images and spectra captured by the MIRI. According to the Science and Technology Facilities Council, these Scottish contributions have been integral to the development of the telescope and its ability to capture such spectacular images. Hamilton-born scientist Professor Gillian Wright led much of the design and build of MIRI in Scotland in her role as director of the UK Astronomy Technology Centre, which is based at Edinburgh's Royal Observatory. She said, it's rare in science to make the revolution in capability that's provided for mid-infrared astronomy by MIRI on web. It's an honour and a pleasure to have led the MIRI team in this achievement, and first and foremost I would like to thank everyone who's contributed along the way to make this possible. Professor Wright added, 
These images and spectra would not have been possible without the international collaboration between the many MIRI partners and stakeholders, along with the fantastic work of the web team to build this powerful new observatory. I'm looking forward excitedly to the many discoveries that will come from MIRI. The image was revealed by US President Joe Biden on Monday evening, with the entire series of images released yesterday. An article written by Laura Webster. The National Politics on Wednesday the 13th of July. UK government urges Supreme Court to throw out case for Indiref 2. A front-page article written by Xander Richards, political reporter. The UK government has lodged papers with the Supreme Court arguing that the Scottish government's bid to legislate for a second independence referendum should be thrown out. The papers make clear the Tory government's view that an Indiref 2 bill would be outside the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament. The UK government is asking the Supreme Court whether a ruling would be premature, given that the Scottish government's referendum bill has not yet been submitted to or passed by Parliament. The news follows a submission from Scotland's Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain, which asked the court to rule on whether the Scottish Parliament had the powers to hold a repeat referendum. Ms Bain asked the Supreme Court for a ruling after concluding that she did not have the necessary degree of confidence that Holyrood could legislate for Indiref 2 to clear a bill for introduction to the Scottish Parliament. Legal commentators are split on whether Holyrood can hold a second independence vote without Westminster's consent, because while referendums are devolved, the union is reserved. At the end of June, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced that her referendum bill, which aims to legislate for a vote to be held on October the 19th next year, had been directly referred to the Supreme Court. Ms Bain said there was a genuine issue of law that is unresolved, which required a ruling from the UK's highest court. However, the Tory government has asked the Supreme Court to consider if it should accept Ms Bain's referral, claiming it raises important legal questions which cut across the statutory process for establishing the competence of a devolved legislation. A provision of the Scotland Act allows for the Lord Advocate to refer to the Supreme Court any devolution issue which is not the subject of proceedings. A spokesperson for the First Minister said the people of Scotland had already voted clearly in favour of Indiref 2. The Scottish Government fully intends to offer the Scottish people the choice of independence and has set out how it will do so, he said. The UK Government's repeated attempts to block democracy, which now seem to extend to an unwillingness to even make a substantive argument before the Supreme Court, serve only to demonstrate how little confidence it has in its case for the Union. However, whether the reference is accepted, how long it takes to determine and what judgment is arrived at are all matters for the Court to determine. The reference is now before the Supreme Court, and the Court should be allowed to fulfil its function. A UK government spokesperson said, We have been clear that now is not the time to be discussing another independence referendum, when people across Scotland want both their governments to be working together on the issues that matter to them and their families. However, following the Lord Advocate's referral of the Scottish Government's draft Scottish Independence Referendum Bill, the UK Government has today lodged its initial response with the Supreme Court. The papers confirm that the Advocate General for Scotland will become a formal party to the case and ask the Court to consider whether it should accept the Lord Advocate's referral. The current Advocate General for Scotland is Keith Stewart, QC, who sits in the House of Lords as Baron Stewart of Dirlton. 
He took up the post following the resignation of Richard Keane, who stepped down in late 2020 after ministers admitted that provisions in the Tories' internal market bill would breach international law. A front-page article written by Xander Richards. From the National of Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the comment section, Leslie Riddoch. Boris Johnson's last Prime Minister's questions showed SNP must change it up in Westminster. Fair enough, that was an unexpected Prime Minister's questions. Yesterday's outing seems to have been the last for Boris Johnson, even though next week's Prime Minister's questions is the last before the summer recess. Either the erstwhile Tory leader knows something we don't, or he's got a better gig lined up elsewhere, or he wants another leader chosen by acclamation, bypassing the membership and letting him slip away completely this weekend, or he wants as few outings as possible in his deed Prime Minister walking mode to avoid remaining reminding folk he's actually still in charge. Fuck ends. Johnson's final, perhaps, encounter at the PMQ's dispatch box also featured an unexpectedly gracious attitude towards his battling successors, all of whom, he said, could wipe the floor with Keir Starmer. But that might simply be because their leadership campaigns have reportedly handed attack dossier on rival candidates to Labour, sparing Boris the need to get rough. Revenge is a dish best eaten cold and all that. A spokesperson for the Labour leader said, I'm not going to get into that. But since all Starmer's lines at PMQs contained thinly veiled digs at Rishi Sunak and his non-dom millionaire wife, you might wonder. Totally expected was the defiant note sounded by the exiting Johnson with his please the gods final ever bunter meets Hogwarts nonsense phrase describing the Labour leader as Captain Crasher Rooney Snoozefest before his reality-confounding declaration about leaving with my head held high. Fairly expected was Keir Starmer's well-targeted pop at the stony-faced new cabinet. A chancellor who accepted a job from the Prime Minister on Wednesday afternoon and told him to quit on Thursday morning. A new Northern Ireland secretary who once asked if he needed a passport to get to Derry and Rishi Sunak, who claimed his big plan is to rebuild the economy. He must be livid at the person who's been Chancellor for the last two years. Aye, very good. But Starmer failed to nail a defeated Prime Minister or even mention his own call for a vote of no confidence. If it was important enough to demand, surely its weaselly refusal on a technicality by the Tories was important enough to highlight. Unless Starmer also knew this was Johnson's final encounter and opted not to get stuck on technicalities. Very unexpectedly, though, at the start of proceedings, both Alba MPs got thrown out for standing and shouting at the Speaker. 
Neil Hanvey and Kenny Maskell as the flummox speaker misnamed the veteran East Lothian MP were expressing fury after Johnson rolled out a Section 30 order for Indy Ref 2 last week. Sergeant-at-arms were called, but whether they actually muscled the two men out, we'll never know, since Commons' camera stayed resolutely on the maddened Cooper of Lindsay shut it hoyle. If the Alba two had waited till Ian Blackford's questions, the cameras would at least be pointing their way, though upstaging a erstwhile political colleague might have seemed a tad nippy. So, was their challenge worth doing? Well, the Radio 5 live analysis that followed didn't ask why the disruption had happened, but merely speculated on how long the pair would be sitting in a local sandwich bar. Sky News showed the row a few hours later, but didn't explain its origins either. So far, so predictable. But the Alma rule-breaking did serve to highlight the weakness of the SNP's rule-keeping and default strategy of playing it by the rules. Several SNP MPs joined Ian Blackford in challenging Johnson's indirect stance, all met by a customary, disdainful, sneering rebuttal before Johnson mocked the delirium of monotony from SNP MPs and embarked on his list of union benefits, recited like a catechism every time an SNP member speaks. But perhaps the most unexpected aspect of Big Dog's last PMQs, as PM, is the fact it commanded next to no airtime, even with the Albustramash, before political commentators had switched to feverish consideration of Penny Mordaunt's campaign launch. Gone is gone, and already political energy is directed to the possibility that a relative unknown might do a Tony Blair and beat all the usual suspects to clinch the top job. If the latest YouGov poll is to be believed, the woman who thinks she can break the yellow wall looks set to beat Rishi Sunak if she makes it to the final two. Why? Because, in the words of supporter David Davis, she's a totally fresh start and was kept out of Boris's cabinet because she was ready to stand up to him. Yep, whoop, whoop. But this means Tory MPs and members may be about to take a sizeable risk and choose a leader who was virtually unknown just a few days ago. A mordant win will give the Tories a lot of momentum. Even if Rishi Sunak succeeds, his will will, his will be a new presence at the Prime Minister's Questions Dispatch Box, surrounded by an array of new Cabinet Ministers including some unfamiliar faces. Sure, they are all just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic since the trashing of the economy and the international rules-based order overseen by Boris will certainly continue with knobs on, if Suella Braverman or Liz Truss prevails. Sure, the low-tax platform looks like Osborne's austerity revisited, even if its proponents haven't the courage to spell out the consequences. Sure, 
Brexit as the holy grail, triggering an EU trade war when the Northern Ireland Protocol is scrapped, will still be the best recruiting sergeant for independence, according to Professor John Curtis. But the danger for all opposition parties at Westminster facing a new reinvigorated Tory leader is that they look slow, stodgy and repetitive in comparison. Of course, Scotland's position hasn't changed. The democratic case for Indiref 2 remains unaltered since the fresh mandate from the May elections and we're only at the start of the strategy papers on independence published by Nicola Sturgeon. But things are changing. The Tories and Labour have both given up on Scotland, evidenced by Starmer's embrace of Brexit, despite the cost of that stance to the country and to his party north of the border. We are different countries with different political norms. The Labour leader knows it. And Sunak's failure to mention the union even once during his leadership launch suggests he knows it too. So, if Indiref too, Scotland's democratic mandate, and indeed the very mention of the word Scotland, is to be met with lashings of scorn and ridicule by the next Prime Minister, a new approach from the SNP is needed. The case for Indiref must look as fresh and sound as vigorous as the new Tory leader. And that might mean a new top team at Westminster. Of course, leadership change might just be throwing good energy after bad, since there's little any SNP MP can do to command media attention in the Commons, or even grudging respect from the London establishment, seminal legal victories notwithstanding. And of course, the battle for independence will be fought and won in Scotland. But Nicola Sturgeon's strategy is to fight an independence general election, so Westminster may be the front line for the next Yes campaign. How will the SNP respond to the rapidly changing face of the British government there? One thing's fairly certain. Business as usual simply won't work. This article was by Leslie Riddich. From the National, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the Sports Section. Celtic manager Ange Postacoglu praised by Leeds' Jesse Marsh. Leeds boss Jesse Marsh has praised Ange Postacoglu and his coaching methods. The American spoke about the Celtic manager ahead of Leeds' pre-season tour in Australia. He waxed lyrical about the way the Aussie turned the hoops round last term, turning them into premiership champions once more. Marsh reckons Postacoglu's style of football and his beliefs in how to set his team up to play the game are mightily impressive. He said, I'm a big admirer of Ange. I think the work he has done here in Australia, in Japan and then in Scotland has been really, really good. What a great first year he had with Celtic. I love seeing people challenge themselves. Have clear ideas, have teams that play in a very distinct manner and stay true to their identity. It is inspiring. Marsh also touched upon his job links with Celtic in 2021. He added, I've heard about the links. It's an honour for me. Three or four years ago, being linked with a club like Celtic would literally be an impossibility for me. 
and now this is where I am. I always just try to look at it in terms of what would the project look like. Would we have similar ideas in how to build it the right way, invest in the academy, invest in young players and create this development process that I'm talking about, and not just focusing on winning? Obviously, I know that when you're the coach of Celtic, winning is the most important thing. That article was by Ewan Payton. From the National, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the Sports section. Celtic star Josip Juranovic addresses transfer speculation amid Atletico Madrid interest. By Mark Walker. Josip Juranovic admits he's flattered to have been linked with a huge move to Atletico Madrid, but he's just desperate to play in the Champions League with Celtic. The Croatian international fullback was tipped to go to the La Liga Giants after a hugely impressive first season with the Scottish champions. Atletico have made buying a new right back a priority, and Celtic are desperate to keep Juranovic, who will be going to the World Cup in Qatar later this year. But in a TV interview with Zagreb-based RTL, Juranovic insisted he's counting down the days to play in the Champions League with Celtic. He said, I hope there was something in the stories, but honestly, I didn't even ask our manager or anything about it. I didn't care. I have to keep my feet firmly on the ground. It was Atletico Madrid, after all, but I'm at a big club already, Celtic. Finally, I have the chance to play in the Champions League here, just to hear the atmosphere, that anthem, and to get to play on that stage. At Croatia, when you have a player like Josko Guardiol, who has been mentioned to make an £80 million move as a teammate, you immediately gain great confidence being in the same side as someone like him. Then we have players like Martin Ehrlich, Josip Sutalu and Josip Stancic. They have all won good transfers to big clubs. So the future is bright for Croatian football. That article is by Mark Walker. From The National, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the sports section. Ex-Rangers ace Shea Ojo finds permanent club after eight Liverpool loans. Ex-Rangers attacker Sherry Ojo has finally found a permanent home after eight loan moves in his career to date. The 25-year-old has joined Cardiff City for a second time after penning a two-year deal. The winger left Liverpool after 11 years this summer when his contract expired. Of his many loans, Ojo spent the 2019-20 season at Ibrox, playing under Stephen Gerrard. Now he's returned to Wales, where he spent the 2021 campaign. During that time, the former England under-21 international scored five goals and recorded seven assists in 41 City appearances. He signed until the summer of 2024. Ojo said, I really enjoyed myself the last time I was here, and I've got some unfinished business to do. I'm really looking forward to the season, and I hope we can do some special things. I didn't actually get to see the fans last time I was here, so I'm really looking forward to that. The one thing that was missing last time was the fans, so I'm excited for the first game. I'm excited to be training with the boys and get stuck in. I know a few of the boys already, so I'm really looking forward to it. Off the pitch, I've got some close friends who live here as well, and I really liked being in Cardiff last time I was here. Steve Morrison commented, Shea adds to that top end of the pitch and gives us some extra quality up there. He's got lots of power and pace, and I'm very excited to see him in action.
He was very good when he was here on loan, but I think there's more to come from him. I liked him when I first saw him, and when the opportunity came to bring him to the club permanently, it was a no-brainer. It's a permanent transfer for him, at, and he's at an age now where he has a real chance to bed in, be somewhere, and make it his home. From the National, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the Sports section. Ian Poulter gets rough reception on the first tee as Open gets underway. LIV golf rebel Ian Poulter was booed on the first tee as the 150th Open Championship began at St Andrews. The 46-year-old is one of 24 players in the field who have signed up to the controversial Saudi-back breakaway series and was the first of those to go out in the morning. Poulter's response was almost to miss the widest fairway in golf with his mid-iron heading well left across the 18th fairway. His ball finished just a couple of yards short of the out-of-bounds line which borders the Lynx Road on the fringe of the course. Poulter produced a good recovery, however, and made par at the 355-yard first. On the eve of the tournament, R&A Chief Executive Martin Slumbers insisted banning LIV golf rebels from next year's Open is not on the agenda, but has not ruled out changing the championship's entry criteria. In a surprisingly strongly worded statement, before taking questions in his traditional pre-tournament press conference, Slumbers said the Saudi-funded breakaway was entirely driven by money and not in the best long-term interests of the game. The PGA Tour has suspended members who have competed in the breakaway without permission, while the DP World Tour fined the players £100,000 and banned them from next week's Genesis Scottish Open, but saw that temporary stayed on appeal. The RA announced last month LIV players who were exempt for the Open would be allowed to compete at St Andrews following the stance taken by the USGA in relation to the US Open. But USGA Chief Executive Mike Juan did admit he could foresee it becoming harder for LIV players to qualify in the future, a view echoed by slumbers. Former champion Paul Laurie had earlier got the action underway in cool conditions. The 53-year-old Scott, winner in 1999 at Carnoustie and originally given the honour of teeing off first on the old course 12 years ago, was first off at 6.35am. A prevailing wind from the west meant most of the outward nine was into the breeze, but it was not strong enough to cause any issues for the early starters, although it was forecast to pick up earlier in the day. Laurie and his playing partners Webb Simpson, the 2012 US Open champion, and Minwoo Lee all made par at the 355-yard first, but Laurie three-putted the next for a bogey. Rory McIlroy, the 2014 champion and one of the favourites this week, due off at 9.58am with defending champion Colin Morikawa and last week's Opian winner uh, Zander Schaufele, was expecting St Andrews to play tough and get tougher. I think with the condition of the golf course, with a little bit of breeze, you can bomb it around here and hit driver and get it close to the greens, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make it birdies from those positions, was the Northern Irishman's assessment. I just think with the way the golf course is playing and how firm and fast it is, it's just going to get super tricky by the end of the week. Tiger Woods, a two-time Open winner at St Andrews, was an afternoon starter alongside newly crowned US Open champion Matt Fitzpatrick and Matt Homer. From the National, 
of Thursday the 14th of July 2022 from the comment section The crisis in Sri Lanka serves as a warning to governments everywhere by David Pratt, Foreign Affairs Editor. If the UK seems a politically dysfunctional place right now, spare a thought for Sri Lanka. What has unfolded there over the past days is a stark reminder of what happens when a people's anger turns to desperation. Last Saturday, months of turmoil came to a head when protesters stormed and occupied the presidential offices and official residences of both President and Prime Minister. Arguably, there is no one single cause for Sri Lanka's instability. Instead, a perfect storm of circumstances combining to bring the country to its knees. From huge, debilitating debt to the coronavirus pandemic, China's geopolitical ambitions, to the pressures on global food and fuel markets, each and all of these played their part in tipping Sri Lanka into the abyss. According to the World Food Programme, WFP, more than a quarter of Sri Lankans, that's 22 million people, do not know where their next meal is coming from. This month alone, Food inflation stood at more than 80% year-on-year. By his own admission, Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesing, who has taken over as acting president after President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, fled to the Maldives yesterday, says the economy has completely collapsed. Most people, too, expect things to get worse before they get better, with warnings that the country could run out of its staple foodstuff rice by September. There will also be next to no future harvest because farmers failed to plant crops because of price rises in seed and fertiliser. I said there was arguably no one single cause for the current crisis, but it's hard to escape the fact that if there is one factor that has connected the country, it is the collective angst against the rule of President Rajapaksa. The Rajapaksa family has dominated Sri Lanka's politics for over two decades and came to power by embracing Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism at the expense of minority Tamil and Muslim and other communities. Gotabaya Rajapaksa himself came to be known as the Terminator for crushing Sri Lanka's nearly three-decade Tamil insurgency in 2009. In the intervening years, the Rajapaksa family has, however, increasingly run the government as a family business, or, to put it more bluntly, a kleptocracy. Graft, nepotism, extortion and human rights violations became the norm, with the regime undermining the independence of the National Audit Office and the Commission to investigate allegations of bribery and corruption. 
Opponents and dissent were ruthlessly suppressed, with Muslims, Tamils and other minorities facing discrimination and threats, while the Rajapaksa regime continued to spin the yarn to an ever-sceptical population that the country would flourish from massive Chinese investment. It didn't, far from it, and only unpaid debts to China mounted, even if Beijing had secured a territorial foothold in the Indian Ocean. In short, the Rajapaksa regime surrendered Sri Lankan sovereignty as collateral. Now, though, the people have spoken, and for the first time mass anger was directed against the country's ruling elite and not a minority community such as Tamils or Muslims. So, what now for Sri Lanka? Most agree of the urgent need for the appointment of an all-party cabinet to help avoid a dangerous power vacuum, steady the nation and help steer it out of the current state of emergency. Only once that degree of stability is in place can a resumption of bailout talks with the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, resume and the country take the first few tentative moves to get back on its feet. Whatever lies ahead in the immediate future for Sri Lanka, its crisis should serve as a warning not least for those fragile developing nations and economies worldwide. According to data compiled by the financial media group Bloomsburg on emerging markets under pressure from rising debt, countries like Ghana, El Salvador, Tunisia, Egypt and Pakistan could easily go the same way as Sri Lanka. In total, the countries most affected are home to 900 million people, owing a combined total of $237 billion to foreign bondholders. It goes without saying such figures portray a potential economic and political time bomb, especially as the world slides towards recession. According to the IMF, during the pandemic, deficits increased and debts accumulated much faster than they did in the early years of the recession, including the largest, the Great Depression and the global financial crisis. The scales say economists is only comparable to the two world wars. But there are other warnings too from the Sri Lanka crisis that governments, including wealthier ones, might want to take heed of. For the inescapable fact is that surging energy and food prices and the global tightening of credit that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine is impacting everywhere and having a cascading effect on the economic fortunes of developed and emerging markets alike. Obviously, where government is incompetent or corrupt, then the greater the vulnerability. It's worth bearing in mind that political malfeasance on the scale witnessed in Sri Lanka is not unique and can be found in greater or lesser degrees across the world, and yes, that includes the UK. In these turbulent times, societies have become more combustible People taking to the streets and public anger over failures of the state, as witnessed in Sri Lanka's largest city, Colombo, last weekend, 
are no longer rare. As each nation feels the pressure domestically from rising food and energy prices, it's almost a given that they will batten down the hatches, only further compounding the crumbling of global cooperation. Already, an erosion of the international political and economic system is underway, the likes of which has seldom been seen in modern times. The ousting of the Rajapaksa regime in Sri Lanka stands as a warning to governments everywhere of the dangers they face as food and fuel prices surge. It's a starkly sobering reminder also of the fate likely to befall those political leaders who rely on patronage and authoritarianism rather than attempting to answer the real needs of their people. This article was by David Pratt. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.